When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Hey, everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words, or in the case of this episode, how scripts change over time. If you value this podcast as a free educational resource, you can support the show and get access to bonus episodes by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks to HT, Dariel, Greg, and Miko for their recent contributions. If Patreon isn't your thing, but you still want to support the show, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash words for granted. Okay, let's get on to today's interview episode with Sylvia Ferrara. Sylvia is the author of the book, The Greatest Invention, A History of the World in Nine Mysterious Scripts. She's also a professor of Aegean Civilization at Bologna University in Italy, an expert in the decipherment of scripts, and the principal investigator of the interdisciplinary project INSCRIBE, which is an acronym that stands for Invention of Scripts and Their Beginnings. As you're about to hear, that's a project that Sylvia herself helped get off the ground. Okay, let's dive in. Sylvia, can you tell listeners a bit about your background and a bit about your work, and particularly the amazing work that INSCRIBE is doing? Oh, thank you so much for mentioning my my group and my team. And I'm really glad that that's the first question, actually, because I don't really yeah. <laughs> talk about me. I want to talk about them. Um, but basically, what, what I did five years ago was come up with an idea and I pitched it to the European Commission, which has a fantastic grant program for innovative original ideas that apply new methods to a big research question. And my research question was, how was writing invented in the world? How did the human species come to such a realization that we could turn whatever we do in speech into visible signs? And since it's a much debated question, there is a lot, still a lot to be learned and a lot of enigmas surrounding invention of writing. What I wanted to do was to probe this from a different perspective because people have assumed for so many years two things one that writing is the vehicle for language it transmits language and that's it so it's a linguistic problem basically and the second one is that writing was invented only once in the world by the sumerians in the fourth millennium bc in mesopotamia modern day southern iraq but now we know that the situation has changed quite a lot and we see different inventions in the world in different periods. So I wanted to sort of look at writing from more perspectives, really, from more sides, not just a linguistic one. And I wanted to understand how um, shapes that we see in writing systems have looked the way that they do. What, what is it that makes a, a shape more you know, selectable than another, and icons and drawings and things like that, like schematic and geometric signs, how, how do they 
end up being channeled into a writing system, into a repertoire of signs, an inventory of signs. And so the cognitive side of things really was a big prompt in my pitch to the European Commission. And also from anthropological points of view, uh, how many times did we come up to, you know, invent writing and who did it and why? What was the big purpose behind it, if there was one such thing? And also the archaeological question. What is it that, you know, what are the affordances or the preconditions that make a writing system possible in an area, in a certain area and not in another one? And what I also wanted to do, and this is my specialty and this is when I can actually talk about me, is to probe into new strategies to decipher uh, writing systems that still are not deciphered, which means that we don't know what languages they're recorded in. We don't know what, you know, what languages are behind them. And in the ancient world, we'll, we'll still see about a dozen writing systems from the ancient world that haven't been deciphered yet. The languages have not been identified. And this is what I've been specializing for many years now, um, because uh, the Aegean, which is the sort of the area of the Mediterranean surrounding Greece and Cyprus, yields four writing systems that haven't been deciphered yet. And the date to the second millennium BC, and one is the famous Festus disc. I'm, I'm sure that some of your listeners will know what I mean when I say the Festus disc, but also uh, writing systems that be belong to the same family, Linear A and the Cretan hieroglyphic, and another one which is called Cyprominoan, and it comes directly from Linear A, and we find it on Cyprus, not on Crete. So this is what I've been specializing on, like how writing came about in the Aegean, in this part of the Mediterranean, and to sort of, you know, realize that well, it is one area, and it's relatively quite small, and it yields so many enigmatic, mysterious writing systems. Why is, why is that the case? So I built up a team. I built up a team around all of this. And, um, and well, I was really glad and happy that I got the money to do so because the funding was pretty generous. And when I won the grant, I was interviewed by the major, the most important Ita Italian daily. And uh, many people read that newspaper. So I, I, all of a sudden, from my tiny room at La Sapienza, the university where I was at, I was kind of projected onto the resonance of the sort of, you know, big audience kind of thing, the big public. And and that, that was odd for me because I'm used to working in a sort of a solitary bubble and in an ivory tower, uh, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> And um, and that propelled me into writing a book. I, I was asked by, again, a really big publishing house in Italy to write a book on this. And I discovered that I was having fun writing about things that most people don't know about in a way that's not professorial at all. I'm a professor at the University of Bologna and, um, and I, I, I feel I'm still 17 and I'm not this sort of, you know, dusty, old-fashioned kind of professor. So I, it was an experiment for me to write like I'm talking to you now, you know? Like we, we're having a cup of coffee and it's early morning and I'm just telling you what I do and what I like to do. Yeah, and, and it's a fantastic book. And as listeners will have links in, uh, in the um, show notes and, of course, in the title, but it's called The Greatest Invention. What is the subtitle? The Greatest Invention... Uh, a history nine, of the world of nine mysterious scripts. 
Right, right, right. Um, and so, so as we progress, I mean, there's so much. It, it's there's quite a lot of information in this book. Uh, for it's not a very long book, but it is packed with lots of amazing um, insights. And so, um, I think I think we'll just kind of cover one undeciphered script one deciphered script um but before we jump into that i just wanted to for 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 listeners your group which is called inscribe that's an acronym what does that stand for invention of scripts and the beginnings and that really mirrors what it tries and reflect what i what i want to do like you know the invention of writing but also the beginnings and how you know we 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 come to this big invention but also how we want to discover new things through cutting edge research and i I forgot to say that we are also using some uh, techniques to decipher and decipher scripts from the ancient world that are not traditional. They're not the old-fashioned traditional traditional ways of like paleography and script analysis and sign analysis. We're also using deep neural networks and computers. So we, we're using methods that are drawn from computer science quite a lot. And we're building 3D models of the inscriptions from the Aegean because this kind of helps us to see the nooks and crannies of every sign. And it's really, really important for us to understand with precision and accuracy what shapes we're dealing with. And the accuracy that the 3D modeling enables us to have is quite fantastic. So we we can distinguish a sign almost automatically, a sign that's very similar to another one, but but it's kind of different at the same time. So we, we see the differences and the convergences in, in the shapes of the signs, which is, you know, it sounds like drudgery and sort of tedious work, but it's really, really exciting because it's never been done before. Yeah, no, it, it's, it sounds absolutely amazing. Now, if I remember correctly, right now, is your team working on the Mamari tablet? Yes. Maybe maybe before we dive in, maybe we should just give listeners, uh, what is the Mamari tablet? What is the script on it? Maybe just like a minute of context, and then we can talk a bit about what's going on with your work. I imagine 99% of the people listening to you don't know what the Mamari is. Honestly, myself included, I did not know about the Rongo Rongo script before reading your book. And, you know, I'm not a professional per se. I'm a guy who hosts a podcast about linguistics and language and, you know, talks to professionals like yourself. Um, but I know some things. I know a fair amount of things for a uh, lay person, so to say. But I did not know about the Rongo Rongo script. So, yeah, let's let's get into that. And just in case I didn't make it clear in the flow of the real-time conversation, Rongo Rongo is the name of the script found on the Mamari tablet. So the Rongo Rongo script is one of these uh, undeciphered scripts from the ancient world. It's not so ancient, so ancient because it dates to the 17th, well, 18th century, really. And we really don't know whether it was inv- invented from scratch in, um, in Easter, on Easter Island, which is an island off of the Pacific coast, uh, off of the coast of Chile. And we don't really know whether it was a script that was invented, we say ex nihilo, from nothing, out of scratch, without any influence from a culture that had writing already. And we really want to understand that. And at the same time, since it's an undeciphered script, we're working on it to try and understand what it says, basically, (laughs) and what language. Well, we already know what language it may be because it's a dialect of a local dialect that's still Spoken, but very sparsely spoken 
on the island, which is the Rapa Nui dialect. So we, we're trying to probe into understanding what sound each sign may represent. And it's sort of like a puzzle to put together or a crossword um, uh, kind of, you know, exercise to put together. And I have a researcher that's working on it and he's brilliant. So what we've done with the Mamari is to build the first 3D model of it in order to correct the transcription and in order to see what the text looks like uh, without any mistakes. Because, you know, when you, when you hand draw an inscription, you're bound to make mistakes because there's your arbitrary interpretation of what a sign may look like. But the scanner, the 3D scanner that we use, laser scanner, is top of the art, state of the art technology. So that doesn't betray any sort of uh, arbitrariness. It's it's the real thing. What you see is what you get, or what you get is what you see. So basically, it really helps us to see the signs in their perfect shapes. And uh, the Mamari is one such tablet from the Rongo Rongo script, which is incredibly difficult to read. It's written with these signs that are icons. They, they resemble things like the, the, the script, the Rongo Rongo script from Easter Island has very weird signs. Some of them look like birds and men put together, some monstrous creatures, but they look very benign, actually. But its iconicity is very, very, very marked, which means that each sign represents a thing that we can actually recognize. It's got a figurative configuration, which really is to me, an indirect proof or an indirect piece of evidence to point in the direction of a of an invention from zero, an invention from scratch, because all the scripts that we know that are that are originally invented have the same kind of uh, substratum, which is this really strong iconicity, this really strong interface with uh, signs that look like things in the environment of the people that create the script so it is a in an incredibly difficult script to crack because there are more than 400 signs and some people think that it's a syllabary uh we kind of think that it it isn't and it is and you know i don't want to get into the technicalities of it all but what we know is that many many signs of this script need to to converge and be assimilated. There are too many of them. 400 plus is too many of them to build the writing system. Well, that's very exciting. Uh, I'll have to keep up with you and your team's research and work. Um, maybe we can shift to some universals of scripts. I think that's actually a good segue, um, you know, talking about the distinguishing characteristics between drawings and signs and um, iconicity. So maybe uh, let, let's start with that question. Um, what distinguishes a drawing from a sign? <laughs> and what is iconicity? I just repeated myself. So yeah, let's, let's roll with Ray, that. You, Ray, you start with the most difficult question of it all because of the whole shebang, I have to say, it is really, really difficult to uh, draw the line by which we can say that's not a drawing anymore, and pardon the pun, but yes, that's not a drawing anymore. It becomes acquiring a sound. And I'm, I'm kind of struggling with that myself because 
I've just written another book for the same publishing house that published um, The Greatest Invention here in Italy, which is called uh, Il Salto, which translates into The Leap. And I wanted, you know, being, an, uh, being a student of, of writing systems, what I wanted to do is to go back, to go back in time and, and see the roots of writing and, I'm, and the more I study and the more I look into the question, the more I see that there are trajectories, let's say, paths that point much to, to a phase that, that's much earlier than the earliest instances of, of writing when it was first invented. So the, the whole thing, the whole idea of a sign that becomes a sound and a written sound should go back to the Paleolithic, should go back to the earliest instances of drawings that we see uh, in caves, in caves, for instance, from France and Spain, but also Australia, also Indonesia. And I've been studying those and I'm, I'm seeing patterns and I'm seeing things that I wasn't expecting to see. You're, you're seeing patterns in uh, shapes? What, what is precisely what? Yes, I see shapes that are geometric and schematic that really have to do with our interface, our cognitive interface with how we perceive the world and how our brain perceives icons and shapes around us, which m must bring about the idea of an affordance. Some signs are, some shapes are more usable than others, they're easy on the eye, and therefore they will be selected by the eye to be part of an inventory of things. And those things may have a sound or not, we don't know and we will never know. But if I draw a contour picture, a contour drawing of a horse, and I'm still, and I'm already capable of uttering things and, and you know, realizing phonetic articulations, with my mouth and with my voice and I have a system that I can call speech and a more sophisticated and complex system that I can call language and I call it that by convention I call a horse a horse I have a logogram and that is not a writing system that is not a finite definitive uh, tidy uh, package it's not that but it's something that works in that direction and therefore, the big question for me is, when do we draw the line? When, when is it that that prompt, that leap, that quantum discovery takes place for that affordance to take place, for that uh, realization to take place, that we can use a drawing and call it something that's conventional and then reuse it in a system that we can, we can call writing because it's got a finite shapes that, that that can be tied to then a grammar and a syntax. And if I may, if I may interrupt you very quickly, would you mind defining logogram for listeners? Well, a logogram is any part of um, any part of a system of signs that refers or can be identified to a morpheme. And a morpheme is the smallest unit in a grammatical pattern. In other words, if I say something, if I say a word such as unattainable, I have three morphemes because I have the negative, I have the root of the verb to attain, and I have the adjective 
uh, ending, which is able. So I will have three more themes there. And if I can render the word unattainable with a picture, I will have a logogram of three things of three separate things, but it's still a logogram. If I draw a horse, I refer and I call it horse, I refer to that morpheme in my language, which is cavallo in Italian and horse in English. So basically it's a sign that refers to one word, but that word is part of a specific language. As we think about how language, as, sorry, as scripts, the earliest scripts probably got off the ground and sort of made this quantum leap that you're talking about. Um, my understanding from your text is that uh, the rebus plays a very important part in this. So yeah, again, sort of let's start with a simple definition. What is a rebus? And then talk about how this got incorporated into early scripts and, you know, it sort of exploded from there as this small, uh, this small seed. Yes, I've, I find, but I'm not the only one that finds this quite uh, compelling. That rebus may be at the, uh, uh, they may be the mechanism whereby scripts are built at the very beginning, uh, and we're talking about the original scripts, of course, in the cases in in which we see original scripts happening in the world, which is Mesopotamia, as we said, also China, also Egypt, and Mesoamerica with the Maya. And the rebus principle is very simple: you have a drawing of a the, of a thing which you can recognize and you, re you can recognize it and call it by, by its name. Say I draw the picture of a sun and I call it sun. But that word, that, that sign, sorry, can be, um, uh, can be also called sun, which is a completely different semantic field. It's a completely different meaning from the sun uh, that you see in the sky. So it's got the same sound, roughly, but the same shape can represent both things, which are semantically unconnected. So this is an easy way to extend the meaning of signs, because if I use the shape of the sun in the context in which I'm talking about the sun and the moon, I can also use that very same shape in a context in which I'm talking about, you know, sons and daughters and fathers and mothers. So it's extendable. You can use one sign for two things that are completely unrelated semantically, but sound the same. So my idea, but it's not, it's not just mine, of course, um, is that all writing systems at first use it, and they use it quite easily, quite speedily. And that is the first thing that they do to prompt the mechanism that builds a, a repertoire of signs. And it's so easy, it comes so natural, it's so spontaneous. We play with words, that these are puns, you know, son. If I say, sorry to be, you know, uncouth, but if I say son of a bitch, <laughs> I can represent that with the sun and a beach, right? And they, they, they are assonant. So I can sort of uh, use signs for different contexts, which I, I find a compelling thing to do because it's just so spontaneous. And it's got a twist because it's got a sense of humor too. You know, we, we, we tend to think of writing as this mechanical thing that translates language into visible signs, but 
but it, it's it's quite a you know it's a, there's nothing artificial about it. It's not something that we did sitting around the table and deciding that this should be it should be channeled into the inventory of signs and that should be excluded. It's a very lively thing that maybe very slow in the making, maybe quite fiddly, maybe quite imprecise and maybe full of uh, deficits and full of things, shortcomings, of course. It's a man-made thing, so it's not perfect. But it is something that, you know, has, has sprung quite naturally from, from our cultural evolution. It's not the same as language, which is an innate capacity. It's an innate ability. It's something but it's, it's social. It's not contrived in the sense of, uh, I mean, there are some examples of contrived deliberate scripts. But generally speaking, scripts that emerge organically from cultures, they're... Um, but like you said, slowly developed and, and, and first and foremost social in their nature, um, which is to say, um, maybe maybe you could uh, say better what I'm trying to say, but it's basically consensus. Like it's it's not like there's someone from on high who says, here's the way it is. The, these are used over time. And, and, you know, like you said, they had they develop these deficits because it's a group project. Maybe maybe group project is. Uh, the term I'm looking for is that am definitely, I onto something? Definitely. It's not something that's done in in solitude. In in you know, let me use the same image in an ivory tower. It's something that needs harmony between people and groups that decide that that thing works and that thing can be an effective instrument, not just of control but of sharing and communicating information and communicating poetry and works of art and. Um, masterpieces of the past. I mean, it's not it's not something that 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 is imposed. I mean, there are ways in which, in in our past history, writing systems have been imposed. I'm thinking of Turkey and Ataturk and the big reform that he yeah uh, right uh, that 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 was a successful thing. You know, using the Latin Roman alphabet to write a language that has nothing to do with Indo-European and the Romance languages, that, that, that was an imposition, that was a top-down imposition, but it worked, and somebody called it a catastroph catastrophic success. But I'm trying to think of other instances in which, you know, writing system was imposed from, from a top, and I can't think of any. Quick note, let's not equate the imposition of writing systems with the imposition of language itself. Languages get imposed from the top down all the time, particularly in colonial scenarios, but it's rare for a ruler or a committee to take a language written in an existing script and then mandate the replacement of that script with another. Um, it, it is a social experiment at first, and then it's a social, it becomes a social practice and a social habit because people realize that it has an application that that rebus principle can be extended through the the signs and the sign list and work quite nicely and and then that thing that phenomenon that is writing can be used to an end to a purpose and to a goal which which is to write things down but we we tend to think of writing as something that was built around bureaucracy and administration and i go dead against that stance I don't think that writing should be tied necessarily to accounting and 
managing of the ins and outs of a of of a state there are many very many instances in which we can see writing adopted or invented for purposes that are different from that well you know you just you just gave me uh just going back a couple of minutes the uh, it, it almost gave me goosebumps the idea that this invention uh like there could have been a, a first a first mover like someone had to be the first person somewhere in a given culture to use the rebus and just thinking maybe they're around a table eating dinner and he has a he or she has a tablet um or some whatever whatever medium of expressing these signs might be a rock a stone whatever it is and he writes uh, he or she writes in um Again, we'll use English as an example, but it wouldn't have been English. They write a sun and a beach, and it's like a joke. It's like, oh, what am I trying to say? And it's like a game, and then they you know, they go around the table, and then they guess it, and they say, oh, ho-ho, wasn't that clever? And they don't think anything of it, and then you know, 10, 20 years later, somehow those signs are still around. They get modified. And obviously this is, I'm thinking this is like stretched out across generations. But I think what you're saying is this kind of game-like humor, very emote, like a very human organic scenario could actually be how writing was first invented in this kind of way. Am I putting words in your mouth or is that kind of right? No, I, I like the picture that you're building. I, I, I like it. It's not, you know, it's not science fiction to, to see it that way. Um, definitely the rebus was the first spark. You know, it, it takes a village to, to, to have a writing system in place and to make it usable and transmissible. You need a school, you need the institution, you need the help of... Oh, sure, sure. I'm just envisioning, like, day, day one. How did it happen? They're around dinner. Here, here, here's, here's my game. What am I trying to say? Day one is what we do every day because we do that every single day. We play with words. And, and there's nothing funny about it. It may be funny eventually, but the mechanism behind all of this is not funny. It's got to do with our cognitive architecture, our cognitive infrastructure, structure, our software, our mental plasticity and capacity to, to, for abstraction as well. So there's nothing funny about that. But the, the first, you know, let's say that the trampoline was that one. The trampoline was that one. That was a prompt. That was the, the thing that sort of goaded the invention into being. And I like to see it that way. I like it to see, I, I, I like to see it as something that, that, that has a spark and then a segue, as you would say, that is more structured, that is more channeled into institutionalized fruition, let's put it that way. So... Yes, I, I, I definitely, uh, if that's your question, absolutely. We've really spent a lot of time sort of talking about very general and very big and broad principles. So um, in effort to keep this conversation around 45 minutes, let's shift gears, if you don't mind, and talk a little bit about Crete and, and the undeciphered scripts there. Oh, Crete uh, is bang in the middle of the Med, and it's uh, a, a fascinating island because in the second millennium BC, it becomes a hub of creativity. And this creativity is socio-cultural, political, um, 
incredibly complex and incredibly lively and rich. It yields four writing systems that are undeciphered, the Cretan hieroglyphic, which seems to be the first, the earliest, uh, linear A, which is closely connected to Cretan hieroglyphic, um, the Festus disc, and which is a unicum, it's just one instance of this script, which is very odd, and a linear B. And linear B was deciphered by uh, a British uh, architect in um, 1952 into an early form of ancient Greek, which is earlier uh, than Homer by 500 years, roughly. But the other, th the other four scripts are completely undeciphered. We we don't know what language or languages they may have recorded. And, you know, Homer, Homer the poet, talks about Crete as a multi-linguistic uh, kind of um, setup uh, where different people spoke different languages. And the, the evidence points in that direction. These scripts look quite dissimilar from one another. And it's not so far-fetched to think that they may record different languages. But of course, we have no sort of, you know, counterproof. We have no litmus test to tell us whether that's the case before we can actually decipher the scripts. And there are so few inscriptions that it's really, really difficult to make any progress. And in 120 years since they were first discovered, little progress has been made into actually identifying the languages behind the scripts. So it's really all work in progress and quite high risk. Um, but we, we, we try, we're not the only ones, of course. I mean, Inscribe is at it, but there are many other scholars that are trying to well, some of some of these scholars are quite resigned. They think that you know, given the fact that we have so few inscriptions, there's no point in even trying. I'm 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 an, an inveterate <laughs> optimist, and I think that some progress can be made. The extent of which I can't really probe into nor talk about, as it is. But I I think there's scope to understand more, to cast light on these writing systems. And definitely to understand them in their internal structures much better. Believe it or not, there is no consensus over how many signs um, are comprised in the inventory of signs in the Cretan hieroglyphic. There is a big debate because the Cretan hieroglyphic has an inherent and quite big iconic, uh, iconic series of signs and you know, I mean, we've just said the writing systems that have that iconicity, that strong iconicity, may point in the direction of a new invention. And many people think that a Cretan hieroglyphic is a new script, that it's not derived from the Egyptian hieroglyphs, even though the name was kind of coined to evoke that <laughs> that influence. But more and more, we think of it as a new script, as a script that's locally invented, of course, with some knowledge of writing, some vague idea that writing existed and it did the job that it did. Um, but give, given the fact that it's so iconic and so based on icons, we it's quite different from Linear A, which looks much more schematic than Cretan hieroglyphic. And it's really important to build sort of reconstruct the relationship between the two scripts in a 
in a proper scientifically based way to gauge whether we're talking about two two different scripts that record two different languages or whether they are the same language written in two st different styles. And my hunch is that we, we're moving towards the first uh, scenario, that we're dealing with two different languages. But, you know, I mean, the research is ongoing. We just published it. You know, jury's still out. <laughs> we, we'll see what happens. But it, it wouldn't be incompatible to see different languages on, on the island of Crete. Homer may be right, and Homer may be a mirror of the reality of spoken language on the island in the second millennium BC. Well, maybe as the last thing that we talk about, since we're on Crete, uh, I think a lot of listeners are probably interested in how the hell anyone actually has gone about deciphering any of these scripts. Like, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about it in abstract terms. Um, so in, I don't want you to feel uh, rushed, but in, in a succinct way, um, maybe can we talk about how decipherment works? I mean, particularly with Linear B um, on Crete. Like, yeah, how did that happen? Well, uh, the decipherment of Linear B is the only instance of decipherment that didn't have any aid, external aid from a bilingual inscription. What Michael Ventris did was, with the help of other scholars, of course, let's not forget Alex, Alice Koba, who was a, a teacher at Brooklyn College in New York. She laid the foundation for Michael Ventris to sort of, you know, leap into the decipherment and the process of deciphering. But what Michael Ventris did eventually was to assign phonetic values, sounds, to the signs through an internal, um, uh, an internal reconstruction. Without the aid of bilinguals, without any external um, assistance. And what he did was quite momentous because what, what he did was build statistical grids of the position of the signs in the sequences in the words to see to what extent he could uh, understand the re phonetic realization. And uh, knowing that the script was a syllabary and it was an open kind of syllabary, the syllables are built on the format of consonant plus vowel, like ka, da, ma, na, etc. And simple vowels. And the first thing that he did was to do a statistical analysis of all the positional distribution of all these signs and build a grid to understand how all these signs interacted with each other. And then he produced, I don't, I don't want to be too tedious, but what, he was quite lucky, I have to say, because there were loads of repetitions in the inscriptions in Linear B. And he could see that there was an inflectional pattern. In fact, it was Alice Kober. Koba, the one that spotted the inflectional pattern. In other words, you had a repeated, repeated series of roots which were followed by different endings. And these endings, just like in, you know, in Latin or in Greek, these endings changed in accordance to the case that was being represented. So you would have the nominative for the subject, the genitive for the property, 
um, marker, the dative for the destination, etc. So he could see that the words changed in accordance to a structure. There was a pattern to the folly of linear B. And he could see that given that you had a syllabic scheme, a syllabic pattern, you could have uh, at the end different consonants and different vowels according to which case you were dealing with. In other words, let me give you an, a very simple example. In Latin, you have a word which means master, which is dominus, from which you have to dominate. And the genitive of that, the, the property marker, is domini. And in a syllabic pattern, dominus, domini, you would see that the N stays the same. So you have nus that stays the same as ni, the N stays the same in the last syllable, but the vowel changes. The U is different from the I that you see in the genitive. And therefore, he he built, uh, he and Alice Kober built a scheme in which the vowel would change and the consonant would stay the same. And that vowel changing was the prompt to realize that you had declensions, that you had a flexional pattern. And he was very, very uh, lucky again, because he saw that many repetitions uh, coincided or ended up coinciding with words that were toponyms, that were place names from Crete. And he could see that some of them started with an A. And if you have a syllabic or a syllabary which has separate vowels uh, for, uh, for its repertoire, separate vowels, separate, a series of, of vowels for, for, as a separate series, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he realized that you, at the beginning of words, you would have an initial vowel separate from the rest. So let's say if I want to write down in a syllabic pattern, amanda, or the verb, the Latin verb amare, that A will be singled out, it will be isolated from the rest, because there's a series for signs, um, for vowels, which just record the vowel, the simple vowel. And he realized that there was uh, a constant uh, repetition of a sequence for the port of Knossos, the palace of Knossos, the palace of Minos. And the port, the harbor of Knossos is called Amnisos. And he saw the repetition Aminiso, Aminisi, etc. And that was one of the first things that sort of created a domino, a domino effect. He could apply phonetic values to the A. He could apply phonetic values to all his charts that had the nus, the ni, etc. So that 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 made it easier because he had he had an architecture that was very very regular. He had a scheme. He had a uh, uh, you know, indicators that things uh, pointed in the in the direction of a known um, a known language, which is not a case with um, several writing systems that I'm dealing with. Maybe they don't record languages that we know that are known. Uh, but he, despite his better, well, despite his suspicion that the script was actually. Uh, recording Etruscan, the Etruscan language, he had to admit to himself quite um, 
um, quite, you know, you know, in a surprising way that it was Greek, that it was an early form of Greek. And it took him not a very long time to get to that realization that kind of, you know, crashed his castle of cards. He was sure that the writing system recorded a, a sort of a pre-Hellenic language, but he thought that it belonged to a, he calls it a Pelasgian substratum, which may, in his, in his view, it was, it was tied to the Etruscans. Yeah, so he had to admit to himself that his first suspicion was actually wrong because the data, the hard data, was pointing in the in the direction of of Greek, of ancient Greek. Yeah, that's an amazing story. It's just it's just so it's just so crazy to to to, to me. But you know, I actually I may wind up cutting this bit out, but this is just for my knowledge. So all syllabaries have an isolated vowel set outside of the consonantal combinations. And, and, and so that, that is how, um, that, that was sort of key. That's like, that bit was taken for granted. Like if this is a syllabary, then we will have isolated vowels and sort of just operating on that assumption. That's how this code was like initially cracked. Yes, I mean, think about it this way. If you have a sign that's only in initial position within a word sequence, only in that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mea, I get it, I get it. It has to be a vowel because if it's within the sequence, then it's incorporated, it's married, it's, you know, it's tied to a consonant because that's the way that the syllabary works. And this is the way that most syllabaries work. They have this constant... Uh, consonant plus vowel pattern, which again, it's a very natural thing. That's how we acquire language in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, ma 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 da da da, etc. Mm-hmm. So we 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 articulate syllables of that kind quite easily, quite well, quite naturally and spontaneously. And it's not far fetched to think that you know, syllabaries when when writing is first invented, they work like that. Got it. So, you know, and think, think, for instance, of Chinese. Chinese, which, again, is a script that's invented from scratch at the end of the second millennium BC. It has, it's a tonal language. It has different uh, meanings for, you know, homophony, homophony rebus is at play all over the place. Like, think of the word ma. The ma, again, it means horse. Sorry, this is completely coincidental that I use the same um, example, but it means horse, it means mother, it means three or four other things. Point being that you have one syllable that has the same sound for different meanings. Homophony is just so rampant in Chinese, as it is in English. You know, English may have really, really odd, long, complicated syllables, but it's it, it, homophony is really really easy to put in place. It's the orthography of English which is a nightmare, and I say it as a you know as a as an acquired learner of of English. So uh, point being that that syllabic pattern is the very core of our utterances, the very core. Sylvia, thank you so much for this discussion. I just. I, I think you're doing absolutely 
amazing work. I don't really have anything else. I don't have anything else to say other than I just really think this is extremely fascinating stuff. Um, so I guess before we go uh, very quickly at the end, any listeners who want to learn more about you, your work, where can they find you in, you know, all the places? All they need to do is to Google um, inscribe in mention of scripts at the beginnings. And there's a whole website with the 3D models of the inscriptions that we've done. And there's a viewer, which is very much, it's so super user friendly. It's really fun to use. They can write to me. Uh, my name is Silvia Ferrara and I work at Bologna University. So they can Google my name. All right. Well, that's it for today's conversation. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. To pick up a copy of Silvia's book, you can follow the link in the show notes. And if you want to support me and the output of this show, there's also that Patreon link in the show notes. I hope you all have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you next time here at Words for Granted. Thank you.